Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. I used to wish that there was a sort of spiritual boot camp where a CT stud or a Jim Elliott would be my sergeant and train me in what it means to be a man of God. But as I've grown, I've realized that there actually is a training ground for believers that forcefully lifts us from the dirt and fashions us into ever-ready soldiers of the cross. It is known as the grace of God deploying itself in our lives by faith. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Spiritual Boot Camp. Please, we'd love for you to contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Spiritual Boot Camp. I don't know how many of you are that excited about going to boot camp. There's some strange thing inside of me that has always sort of wanted to go through boot camp. Uh, Leslie gets a little uncomfortable whenever I bring it up because she's like, we have four little ones, and now you're responsible for all that's happened at Ellerslie. You can't just leave and go to boot camp. Uh, But there is something in me that wants to have someone hollering at me saying, Moody, give me a hundred. You see, it's hard because sometimes that voice isn't loud enough within me to say, Moody, give me a hundred. See, I want God to have a forceful voice within me to get me in shape and to whip me into the type of man that I must be for the challenges that I will face in this world. Most of us, we have a little too much sluggishness in our soul, and we're not necessarily attracted to boot camp. And I know what you mean. There's part of me that doesn't want boot camp too, okay? So don't get me wrong. It's not all of me that wants boot camp. It's a part of me that wants boot camp. So this isn't just, it doesn't just say boot camp or military boot camp. This is spiritual boot camp. This is sort of what Ellerslie is in a little small way. However, what this message is, is something that goes with you. This is the Holy Spirit, the life of God imparted to a man or a woman of God. And he whips us into shape for the glory of his name. Okay, so if you're not really looking forward to boot camp in your own life, then this might be an exhausting message for you uh, where you'll squirm in your seat the whole time because there's going to be a few times in here where you're going to hear the Spirit of God say, Hey, you! Give me a hundred! Okay? You guys ready for that? This will be fun. Yeah. Good job. We have a few people that are looking forward to boot camp. Spiritual boot camp. I'm going to introduce you to a few words. These are very basic words in the Christian world. Uh, but it's very important that we get some just raw materials out on the table. Grace. Now, I love teaching on grace. Grace is one of the most misunderstood words in Christianity today. It's been emptied of its power. It now simply means to most people a big hug from God, an acceptance, uh, not the impetus, the power, the strength that it actually is. See, grace is almost like a code word for the power, the might, the efficacy of God Almighty. It's also a code word for something we could call the Spirit of God or the imparted life of Jesus Christ. Okay? That expands your understanding just a little. It's the gospel of grace. And so when I get into this, you'll understand this in a little fur- further dimension, but it's not necessarily what the message is today. It's just you need to understand this to get the message. So I have my little short definition of it for you. The labor of God on man's behalf. Someone needs to do a work, and you're ill-equipped to do it. It's called a work of salvation. You can't pull it off. So guess who did? He did. His labor is what you need to be what you ought to be. And it's not just in the big picture that he died to cover your sins. He died to equip you to live a life which was not controlled by sin. And so to live that life that is not controlled by sin and not under the thumb of sin, guess what you need? Grace, you need the impetus, the labor of God today. 
to actually labor within you towards the ends of God's grace, God's holiness, God's mercies, God's love. You cannot show this world what God is like, but he can in and through you, and that work is grace. Listen to this little line. Now, you'll notice I cut off half of it, and some of you that have memorized this verse are going to be like, hey, what happened to the second half? Don't worry, it's coming. For by grace are you saved. What saves you? Grace. Is it just the hug of God? It's the work of God. God laboring on your behalf rescues you. But there's one very important thing that's after this dot, dot, dot. That if you don't have it, the grace is unable to save you. So let's get this other half. Oh, I just, this is important little stuff here for grace. Grace is not just evidenced at the cross, but has been made eternally available through the cross. This grace is ever-present, always available, always accessible, amazingly sufficient for every good work, potently efficacious, and divinely effective in procuring its ends. God has ends that he wants to accomplish in your life, and how does he accomplish it? Through grace. It's by grace that you are saved. Now, most of us, when we hear the concept of saved, we think of, oh, I'm saved from hell. Well, that's a nice piece of the puzzle. However, you are going to be attacked... Everywhere you turn as a Christian, and even if you're not a Christian, you'll find out that you're going to be eaten for lunch by the enemy. We have an enemy. We live in hostile territory. You have a disposition that is hostile and rebellious towards God. How are you going to make it through this life? What do you need? Grace. Grace doesn't just save you from hell. It saves you from the temptation that's staring you in the face today or the hundred temptations that may stare you in the face this week. What do you need? You need grace. But for grace to be activated within the soul, you need something else. So faith, we could call it the trusting gaze of man upon his God. You see, God exists, whether we acknowledge it, see it or not. But faith is able to see through this veil into the supernatural realm and actually behold with the eyes of the soul the realities of God. God is real. His word that he has revealed, his revelation to the saints of God, which declares the truth of his kingdom. We can see its veritability or its believableness. It's true. It's sort of a strange thing as a Christian because there's millions upon millions, if not billions of people that snarl in the face of God. They don't believe him. They don't believe his revelation. They don't believe Jesus as his son. And yet, for whatever reason, we as believers are seen through a veil, and we say, no, it's true. Faith is a gaze of the soul upon the trustworthiness of God. He is who he says he is. Okay, that's a very simple definition, because my message is not on faith, so I'm just giving you basic little definitions. But here's our key second half to the scripture. For by grace are you saved. What? How are you saved? By grace. But how does grace enter your life and help you. You must have faith. And so you must actually believe God to be who he says he is. You see, grace is available to the saints of God to rescue them in every situation, not just for the moment, but for all time. You can be rescued. This is available to the saints of God, but to access this great work of God for you on your behalf, you must have faith. Faith is the channel through which grace flows into the life of man and thusly into this earth. 
Faith is the response of the soul to beholding the truth, reality, and fact of God's being. First, a man knows. See, most of us understand faith as being merely a mental assent. So if someone says, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. By the way, that's true. But belief is a multifaceted or multifolded concept. Belief is not just a true-false test. Did Jesus Christ exist? We're like, true? And they're like, oh, you're fine. They pat you on the back. Satan knows that. It's not just knowing something cerebrally as if it's a trivial uh, you know, piece of information. You must know it. So that's an important thing. If you don't know it, then you, you, know, you can, cannot respond to it any further. So at first a man knows, and thusly he reckons. Okay, so if you know something to be true, that means you take it and stick it in your spiritual pocket. I've used the illustration with students a lot. If there was a $20 bill sitting on the, on the, on the stage here, and I said, this $20 bill belongs to you. And you say, in, later that day, someone asks you, so did Eric give you a $20 bill? You could say, absolutely, it's true. Did you take the $20 bill and stick it in your pocket? No, I, I didn't know I needed to. What? What's the good of knowing that there's a $20 bill just for you if you don't rise up, walk forward, and grab it? That's faith. Faith takes what God has promised, doesn't just know about it. Okay, and that's the concept of reckoning, which Paul unveils in, the, in Romans 6. So first man knows and thusly reckons and then yields and presents his life unto God. If it's true, what you believe, if it's true, this means that God has redeemed you. This means that he has purchased your body with his blood. Do you believe it? And we say, yes, I do. So then you take this as your reality, and guess what that means has to happen next? Uh, that body of yours belongs to him. You're like, whoa, uh, can't I just hold on to it myself? I thought you said you believed. Which means you took it as fact. You took it as truth. Which means, guess what your reasonable act of service and worship is? Give him what he purchased. You present and yield your body to him. This is belief. This is faith. So he yields and presents his life unto God and then exerts his soul willfully in absolute unquestioning obedience to the commands of his new Lord and Master. I belong to Jesus Christ. He rules me. This body is his. Now from this day forward, whatever he says goes. And you exert the will of your soul in that direction. Welcome to faith. Faith is seeing it, knowing it, taking it, responding to it, and then giving yourself fully to this new reality that you see. He accomplished it. What do you do in response? You believe it. And that's belief. You have a new Lord and Master. Let him have his way in your life. All right. So we went through grace. Then we went through faith. Now these are like the classic foundation stones of Christianity here. You know, these aren't like novel little words that are used once in Scripture. This is. Most of Scripture is summed up in some of the terms we're bringing up here. Love. Now, love, to many of us, is a song, is a poem, is a letter. And then some of us have cheapened the notion of love so immensely that we love our pillow. Uh, We love marshmallows. You know, we love... Things, but it's a different love, okay? Love, is, love has become an all-defining, all-consuming, or all-encompassing word for positive emotion. If we have an affection towards something, then we have love for it. The good thing is, in the Greek, 
there are different words that define these different affections that we have. Okay, but love is, we would, I'm going to use the Greek word for it in a bit here to expand your understanding for it. But right now, I want you to realize this is very big in the Christian life. And I'm going to call it the behavior and attitude of man. I'm sorry, the behavior and attitude of God expressing itself in man. So when grace comes in and through the channel of faith, what enters the human life? Grace. When grace begins to move and have its work within the soul, within the body of a man or a woman that believes, that has faith, you know what it evidences itself through? Love. The evidence of a changed life, a life now built after the life of God, bearing the very nature of God. What is that nature? That nature, that behavior, is love. That's what God calls it. That's why when we cheapen the notion of love... We end up robbing from God. Who is this love? Actually, he's the word agape. In other words, this is what he is. So it's almost easier to use that word because that is the enunciation of what grace does in and through faith in a believing soul. It showcases the agape of God. Who he is, his behavior, his attitude in all situations now can actually be revealed in and through us. Whoa! Isn't that extraordinary? That we, these piddly humans, can declare to the heavenlies the manifold wisdom of our God and show forth His very nature, His very agape. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. It's basically saying, all these external things, or not doing the external things, these don't actually accomplish anything. There is one thing that accomplishes what God's great work is. What is that something? It's faith which works by love. I remember growing up and I always memorized this scripture. It's faith expressing itself in love. The, great, the Waldensian Christians who lived in the Italian Alps, they had their statement of faith. It was very simple and the very conclusive all Uh, encompassing statement that they made about what it is that they believed and what they stood for is that faith was the operation of the soul, but to evidence its true reality, it must work itself in love. If for faith to be genuine, if you truly have faith, what does your life showcase? Love. It must have that work. This is the work of faith. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. If you don't have the work of love coming through your life as a result of your faith, then your faith isn't true faith. You evidence The authenticity of your faith by the fact that the fruit of your life shows forth the work of God. And the work of God, in and through a man, is love. This is what he shows forth. And it's not a feeling. It's not a love note in a poem. It can be. There's nothing wrong with those things. But it is a life transformed to declare to this world around, this is what God looks like. This is what God thinks like. This is what God speaks like. This is what God acts like. That's a Christian. The action of faith 
causes grace to overtake, empower, and renovate the believing life. Turning the body of a man into the workshop of God. The result is an alteration of behavior and attitude. The result is God's divine behavior begins to manifest and demonstrate itself in and through the consecrated saint of God. I'm going to stop there for a second. Now, I want you to use a different mental picture for this. Let's call grace a seed because he is. It's, It's a person. It's Jesus. Okay? But it's also the spirit of God. It's the spirit of Christ. It's, it's God, okay? God is a seed. Now, do you remember the history of the Hebrew nation? There was always a seed, and it would be this seed that would crush the head of the serpent. It's actually likened to a seed, okay? And so it, you see this history of a seed, and you also see Satan trying to exterminate the seed all throughout the Old Testament. Seth is the carrier of the seed. And then it goes through all the line of Noah. You know, Methuselah, remember him, 969 years? He was a carrier of the seed. And then Noah... And then, uh, what, Shem? Shem has it. And then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's also known as Israel, and then Judah, and then David, Solomon. These are carriers of the seed. And then guess who was the ultimate fulfillment of the seed? Jesus. So when I say Jesus is the seed, just saying what the Bible says. He is the seed. He is grace. He is the empowerment. He is the labor of God on your behalf. It's him. It's his life. It's his power. It's everything he's accomplished. It's summed up in him. And when he went to be with the Father, what did he give us? He gave us the Spirit of God. Grace. He gave us all his work, the efficacy of it, available to us. Now let's liken that seed, and let's liken you to soil. Okay, but if you're hard soil, unwelcoming soil, weed-filled soil, rocky soil, guess what? You cannot receive the seed. And so what God does in his work of grace, even before he's planted within you, is he somehow breaks up the ground. The fallow ground is broken up in your soul. It's a strange thing how we go from being against God to being for God. You ever thought that through? It's like, what happened in me? Was it some great work that you did? It's a great work that God did in you to prepare the soil. And what faith is, is merely a, a soil that seems to be awakened, saying, I need that seed because I must produce life. And I don't have any life in me. Could you imagine being a pile of soil? Like you are. And you need to produce life. And so you look around and you see what life is. And so you find a few dead sticks and you stick them in your soil. And try and fool God with it. Oh, this is life. Yeah, it's sticking up. But if the wind and the rains came, they immediately knocked these sticks down. That's not life. You need the impartation of grace. But how do you receive it? In and through faith. I know I need that. I see the seed. Please, seed, be planted here. And so God prepares that soil and then even seems to beckon forth that calling in you to say, I need that. And you cry out for that that seed to come in and be planted in you. Okay, and what happens to that seed? It begins to grow in faith. As long as it's in that good soil, it's like this moistened soil by the grace of God in and of itself. So God is both the seed. He's also the preparer of the soil. But he also seems to be, the the grace of God also seems to be what waters it and provides the sunshine. It's by grace that this seed will grow, but it must remain in faith. As long as it remains in that soil. Could you imagine it starts to, you know, bring forth life, and then you take the seed out and stick it in a jar and go, oh, look at this. It must remain in that soil of faith. And if it remains in that soil of faith, then grace in and through that can take root 
and can grow. It's the only way that grace can actually manifest. But what is it manifesting? It manifests the very reality of God in love. So that plant that is growing forth is, in fact, God in you. But it's known in this world as love. It's God, the seed, watered by God and his grace. And what comes forth in and through that soil? Love. It's a plant. It's a very reality. It bears flowers and it bears fruits. And it produces much. Now we have this interesting word, hope. It's a poorly understood word in the Christian dialect. It's just, we don't even know what it really means. It's, it's not a bad word. It's not a complicated word either. But I want you to realize this is what brings sweetness to the strawberry on your plant of love. You know, if you just bore fruit, say it was a luscious uh, strawberry, but it was colorless. And it didn't have any flavor, you'd eat it. You know, that's, how, that's some of us, we have fruit like that. Or how about if it bore flowers and it was just a colorless flower and it didn't have any delight to it? Hope is what adds color. It's what adds fragrance. It's what adds sweetness to all of our life, which is the evidence of Christ, his grace, working in and through faith, in and through love. But it's not just love. It's love with a kick and a dance and its step because we have hope and hope maketh not ashamed. What we hope in is real. It's fact. And so it adds a little skip and a little dance. See that dance? You guys are thinking, I wish I could dance like that. It adds a dance to your step. We need hope. But let us who are of the day be sober. Put it on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The action of faith also causes grace to perform a beautiful reforming work upon the entire outlook and perspective of a believer. Enabling them to have a buoyant, robust joy and abiding peace in every challenge, situa- every challenging situation life brings. Could you imagine having a buoyant, robust joy and abiding peace in every challenging situation that life brings? Oh, I mean, we would, we'd pay big bucks for this type of a life mentality. That's just Christianity. And it comes through simple believing. You have faith. This is the natural result. And through all of the, in this natural, and though all in this natural realm may defy the promises of God and mock our Creator's claims on this earth, hope, this amazing work of grace, remains resolute, unmoved, unfazed, and undeterred. The three great works of grace. And so we have this concept of grace. I called it the seed. I call it the labor of God. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the work of God on man's behalf. So the three great works of this work of God. So when this work of God comes into a believing soul, what does it do? And now abide faith, hope, love. But these three, but the greatest of these is love. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that scripture. I'm sure you have. But have you ever wondered why? Paul goes out of his way to clarify that the greatest of these is love because you wouldn't even have love without faith. And hope is what makes it livable and endurable. It's because the chief end is to demonstrate the nature and the image of God on earth. It's for his glory. And God can get no glory unless his nature is being evidenced and made manifest. The greatest of these is love. Faith is the conduit. If all you have is faith but no work of that faith, no evidence of that faith, it's truncated. In fact, it says that in the earlier part of 1 Corinthians 13. 
You can have faith to move mountains, but if you don't have agape, you don't have anything. It's empty. It's hollow. This is what it's all about. So if you do not have this agape, this love forming within you, something's wrong because this is God's chief end. He must get glory out of your life. And the way he gets glory out of your life is to, to use it as a vessel to declare to the heavenlies and to this world around his agape. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Faith in its chief work, love. So what I'm saying is the chief work of faith. The chief work of God, you know, it would be an interesting statement. What's the chief work of the cross? Well, that's an interesting statement. Well, it's to ultimately bring forth the Holy Spirit into our lives, which is grace. However, the chief work of grace is love. God is interested in declaring his nature and his behavior, which is his glory, the unshrouded, unveiled perfection of who he is, in and through, believe it or not, his saints. Ephesians 3. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ, and I put a little AKA in here, AKA grace, may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. What is that power that's working in us? Well, we know it's the Holy Spirit. That's how most of us have been trained. But it's grace. It's grace that is working in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Okay, now I'm bringing this scripture back for a reason. It's basically saying that all these things you could do, all the good deeds you could do, all the things you could try and abstain from, and the things you could do, it doesn't actually matter to anything in heaven. The only thing that counts is faith working itself in love. In other words, you receive the grace and the conduit, that soil, firmly holds that seed and allows it to take root and to grow into a plant of renown, the kingdom of God on earth. And that kingdom, that plant, is the evidence of love, is the evidence of God here on earth. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus... Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard in me, in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Agape, the chief end. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to switch from the word love to the word agape. Okay? Uh, It sounded sort of Spanish when I said it that time, but uh, it's supposed to be Greek. Agape. Uh, And if I'm getting my my Greek a little incorrect in its uh, emphases, it's uh, not unusual. Okay? I'm famous for doing that. Uh, agape. It, you know, most of us have always said agape, right? Welcome. Do you remember? Welcome to agape land. You guys remember that growing up? 
Good song. Excellent song. Okay, so I'm going to switch things up and call it agape. How do you like that? Just to mess with you a little. The chief end. What is the chief end of man? Okay, this is good old classic shorter catechism here from the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I'm not going to argue that. I think that's perfectly fine. Well stated. Agape is the glory of God. The full weighty expression of his person, his beauty, his holiness, his majesty, his purity, his justice, his mercy, his kindness, his wrath, and his power. Agape is God, and God is agape. Agape is God behavior, God thoughts, God actions, God nature, God character, God ethics, God compassion, and God's manner with sin. And it is this agape that reveals God. Agape is the great work of grace and the great end of faith. So agape is the great work of grace. So when grace is coming in, what's its great work? Love. And it's the great end of faith. So what's faith, if it's truly faith, going to produce? It'll produce a work. Faith will produce a work. What is that work? Love. Agape. Second Peter 1. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Okay, now I'm going to start going through a list of uh, Greek words here because I swapped out the words that were here. I left in faith, which is pistis, okay? So, because that's not what I'm going to teach on. But you'll notice here, I have a list in, in 2 Peter. It's not my list. It's Peter's list, which is God's list. But that you're supposed to add with all diligence. You've been given all these promises. You've been given the inheritance of the saints of God in Christ Jesus. And so you've been, you have faith. You've evidenced faith, and that's how you even get into Christ. But to this faith, you're supposed to add something. You're supposed to add. And with all diligence, you know what uh, with all diligence means? With haste. With strength. With energy, add to this faith. Don't allow it to remain alone. You must put effort in from your soul. There must be an exertion of obedience to God. When he reveals something in his word, you say, yes, Lord. Do it with haste, with resolve, with quickness of feet, if you will. Spiritual feet, though. Giving all diligence, add to your faith, arite. I know you don't know what that is yet, but just if you've memorized the scripture, you're going to be like, huh, this is going to be an odd way of looking at it. And to arite, gnosis. And to gnosis, egretea. And to egretea, hupomone. And to hupomone, eusebia. And to eusebia, Philadelphia. And to Philadelphia, agape. So what you'll notice is that we started with faith, and what did we end with? Agape. It's not an accident. This is the work of faith. You're supposed to add to it to gain the evidence of agape. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence. That's that same word, diligence. Quick-footed, hasty. Go, move, act upon this. God has given new life within you. Caretake for it. Be guarded. Be vigilant for it. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Not a bad deal, huh? 
I say, let's with all diligence add to our faith arite. And you're like, how in the world do I do that? I don't even know what it is. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by agape. Now look at this. That's the one most of us are familiar with because we've, some of us have memorized Galatians 5. Okay? There's certain chapters in the Bible that get memorized, others that get left behind. Galatians 6 gets left behind. Uh, but in Galatians 6, we have the same thing that Jesus Christ neither circumcision, in, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but, and it gives faith which works by agape. Now look what it says in Ephesians 6.15. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Which is drawing a direct connection between faith working itself in and through love and a new creature. So one of the terms I will use for what love is, what agape is, it's the evidence and manifestation of the new creature life. In Christ Jesus you are a new creature. He has made all things new. Okay, And that newness is not your old behavior. It's his behavior in and through you. It's the new creature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature of all things. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So let's go through this more focused. Okay, What's funny is I, this isn't even my message yet. I have to build this elaborate foundation just to get to my point today which is spiritual boot camp. I don't want to think, if any of you haven't been uncomfortable yet, we need to get there, okay? We need to get you uncomfortable. With all diligence, add to your faith. What are we going to add? Arite. I'm going to, with each one of these, I have uh, something that I would say is new. I'm going to call this the new man. The translation that many of you are familiar with would be moral excellence, or some of you would be virtue. Add to your faith virtue. You know the word virtue? See, it's a hard thing to know how to describe. This word arite doesn't work well with the English language, I guess. I mean, I've been studying it all week long, trying to figure out how to articulate this. The reason virtue is used is because ver means man, manly strength. And when we think of virtue, virtue in the Old Testament is actually manly strength. So a woman of virtue, a woman of manly strength. How do you like that? It's a woman who demonstrates The strength and the efficacy of the man of God, Jesus. This is what he looks like in and through his bride. That's Proverbs 31 in a crash course. Arite, the new man. Okay, this is what happens. What are you adding? You're allowing your life to be cleaned out, to be hollowed out from your agenda, a renewing of the mind, a change of ownership. It's a new man. It's a new management. It's a new operation that is taking place. And so you've had, I mean, there's junk all over your operation. If this is your your body, this is a factory, it's full of filth. Allow God to come in and purge it. Add to your faith this newness, this moral excellence, this cleanliness. This is where the concepts of charity and chastity and uh, modesty even come in. The classic old terms, okay? Which is basically saying you add to your faith a new behavior, a new thinking pattern. It's a new man. The growl for purity, love, and honor. The vigorous exertion towards moral excellence within the soul. A throwing off of an old behavior and a putting on of a new one. A swallowing up in the efficacious merits of the shed blood of Jesus, which means to enter into his life. And now you behave differently. 
You don't think the same way you used to. You're in Christ now. You're not in Adam. The old man is dead. A new man lives. Well, this is the coordination of that new man in your existence. A newfound thunder and strength within the soul, campaigning on behalf of the new king's way of doing things in the body. See, you're used to doing things a certain way in the body, but now there's this campaign going on. They're picketing on the streets of your body. And, you know, they're like, hey, we don't do that anymore. And it brings conviction. And there's a constant reminder. It's like, boy, what did I give myself over to? Jesus means business. You better believe it, he does. He's clean in house. He has a new manner in which he rules his kingdom. It's different than the way your kingdom has been ruled in the past. Kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light are polar opposites. Kingdom of light has now moved in and a new way is being established. The king's way. And that is what the new man is. Put it on. Add it to your faith. Gnosis. We'll call this the new map. A very real grasp of truth. A ready agreement with God's fact. A clear grip on God's thoughts, a hold on God's ways, an understanding of God's manner. Where do you learn this as a saint of God? Where do you learn God's fact, his map? Where is it? It's the word of God. So this is basically saying to your faith, add that new man. But you need the map. You must get familiar with this map and you must realize the integrity of the God who wrote it. Build your life around his fact. And don't be moved on it. Stand in faith, remain in faith, and remain with a new man instead of an old man at the helm of this life. And add to that the fact of Scripture. Take it as a map. You, you have confidence in a map. And if it says go north, you know, 100 miles, and you'll reach your destination, guess what? When God says go north 100 miles, most of us are like, well, I don't know. That's just an opinion. Who's more right, your map in your car or God's map in the Word of God? I'd say even if everything in this world seems to come against and contradict God's revealed map, you go with God's map. It's always right, without exception. Discern, it's discernment of what is right, true, accurate, in alignment with God. All true knowledge comes from the word of God, revealing the mind of Christ, the fact of God's great plan. Gnosis. Add to your faith, arite. Add to your arite, gnosis. Add to your gnosis, enkretia. Okay, by the way, this is what I'm going to come back to. I'm going to just pass over it and act like, you know, we're just using it as one thing in the list. And then we're going to come back to it. So you might as well get a little familiar with it here. It's the new strength. The strength of God made manifest in the saints in order to garrison the body. Shield it from every fiery dart of the enemy. It's a God-enabled governing of every operation of the body. A divinely empowered control over appetite, sleep, and sexuality. It's letting not sin reign any longer in the body. Boot camp. Right here. This whips you into shape. You add it to your knowledge. When you know what is true, what do you add to it? You start acting upon that truth. You start implementing that truth. And God says, I've given you everything you need to hold sway over your soul so that the enemy no longer has room to maneuver. Exert it. Exert that new strength that you have. Add to your new man that new map. And then when you see what's in that map, you add that new strength in. Hupomone, the new endurance, soul unshakability, the immovable, unbreakable, persistent, unswerving strength of a man, established and constructed by the grace of God. Never growing tired in his faith, never growing weak in his resolve, enduring until the very end. Eusebia, the new behavior. 
It's heavenly honor, empowered and made possible by the spirit life within. It's thinking God thoughts, speaking God words, behaving with God behavior. It's a life that beholds the thrice holy God. A life lived in constant worship, bearing the attitude in the mind of those dwelling in the throne room. By the way, this is typically translated as goodness, which is godness, the behavior of God. Which, by the way, you cannot just add to your life because you're like, you know what, I'd like to add a little goodness to my life today. I'd like to behave as God. You know, I haven't been doing a good job of that, so I'd just like to behave as God today. Can't do it. You need faith to enable the grace of God to come in. What does the goodness work within you? Grace. Now, what you're going to see in all of these things is that this finishes with the crowning jewel of agape. All of these things are agape. Agape is the chief over all these. These are his little servants. So when you see agape defined in the New Testament, it's defined as all these different things. It's defined as these behaviors that are like subsets underneath the new creature. This is the new creature. This is everything being made new. This isn't the way we naturally are. So God is going through and he's saying, add to your faith. Add, 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 add. Now we have agape. This is agape. This is what it is. Philadelphia. I know some of you come from Philadelphia, but this is Philadelphia. How do you like that? Washing the feet of the saints. This is all, a lot of times known as brotherly kindness. Okay? I love this. This is a beautiful picture of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's not very common today. So it's the new affection. Isn't this an amazing thought to think that God can actually stir an affection for others inside of you? You know that dull, dead heart you've lugged around for so many years? No more. You can actually have a warmth of manner, a caring, that you delight to share in the struggles of those around you. Even though it be grievous, even though it be difficult, there's a delight in having that intimacy and that warmth within the body of Christ. Washing the feet of the saints, seeking the benefit of those who believe, laboring to see the body of Christ built strong, carrying those sick with the palsy to the feet of Jesus, honoring others above yourself, seeking the profit of the saints, even if it means you go without. It means deep abiding affection for those considered brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Philadelphia, good stuff. And now we have agape. Okay, this is the crowning jewel. The new creature is what I called it. You could call it the new operation. I called it the new creature just because it matches with what it said in Galatians. It's God's very nature revealed. Not just his behavior, but his unsullied attitude in all circumstances. It's the perfect excellence of Christ's behavioral action combined with the perfect excellence of Christ's extraordinary affection. It is the great end of the spirit work within us to conform us into the image of our Christ, to make us expressions of his agape. For agape is what he is. This is his very person. And when this agape is evidenced in the saints of God, it is the single greatest demonstration of the glory of Almighty God on earth. This is what a Christian is to be known by. How will you know those that are his saints? How will you know a Christian? By their agape. Isn't that an amazing statement? You will know them by this. This is the hallmark. This is the badge that we wear. It's a pretty big badge, by the way. The behavior, the attitude, the affections of God. That's what we're known by. So when you try and whip this up in your own strength, it's like, I'm going to have some affections. I'm going to behave like God. You know, you can have, you, I don't know if any, any of you have ever seen a Rocky movie where the music 
It's a whole scene in every one of his movies where he's like training, running mountains, carrying logs, you know, doing sit-ups, hanging off a, you know, a, a rafters, you know, incredible stuff. No chance of whipping up. I don't care how good the background music is. I don't care how much effort you stick out. You cannot produce agape. You can produce a worldly form of love. You can have worldly affection. You can, there's various things you can whip up, sure. But nothing that would please God. Nothing that would resemble the king of kings. All right, so you'll notice I made all my case here. Why did I make that big case to get to one little chunk of the case? It's because I want you to realize this is not a small thing. This is one of the mechanisms that expresses God's love and behavior on earth. And we are almost completely devoid of it in the body of Christ today. We esteem most of these things, but we're not performing most of these things. And so when some of us, you know, we hear a sermon on these things, what do we try and do? We try and perform it in our own strength. So this concept in the King James, it's translated as temperance. It's just not a good translation because if, you, if any of you know what temperance is, there's things called temperance societies. That means they don't drink alcohol and they try and prohibit other people from drinking alcohol. This concept, far beyond temperance. Okay? The other term that's oftentimes used for it is self-control. Not a bad term. It's actually a fairly creative definition. I don't know if they made up the definition to just fit with it uh, because it makes sense. But most of us have a different understanding of what self-control is than what the biblical understanding is of it, which is egratea. In other words, for most of us, self-control is trying not to burst a blood vessel when the light that we're stopped at is taking too long. I was like, self-control, self-control. Or not you know, hitting your child when he acts up. That's not self-control. That's good not to do. But self-control is way beyond that. Okay? It is a behavior of God within us. Self, that has always ruled our life, is now controlled underneath the power and the authority of Jesus Christ and under his word. There is a diminishment and he is controlled. However, there's more to it. And that is that you were assigned the position to take what the spirit of God says, what the word of God says, and command your body... To obey it, you have a new strength. See, before you could not obey the commands of God. He'd say, be pure. No, don't allow that thought in. Well, guess what? That thought comes in anyways. You have no ability to say no to it. That's the lack of egratia. That is the lack of any restraint to your soul, to your mind, to your thoughts, to your sexuality, to your appetite, to your sleep. You're controlled by your body. Now, you're a new man in Christ Jesus. But it's no longer you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. Christ lives in you. Grace is the operative controlling power within your life. Yet, guess what? Paul says, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. But he says, yet I live. That's sort of like you. It's sort of a hard thing to explain. I can just see Paul saying, it's it's hard to explain. But you're dead and yet you live. But you live now as a servant, a bondservant, unto the Spirit of God, unto grace, unto the work of God in your life. And whatever that work of God says to do, whatever Jesus says to do in this body, guess what? You are now in the position to command your body into obedience. You tell your sexuality, no! And your sexuality might come back and say, hey, who says? Jesus. Oh, okay. (laughs) You actually have the position of authority now in your body to command it what to do, and that's Egratea, that's what you're supposed to add to your faith. You are supposed to add this in. And this is an evidence of love. 
within your body. It's a work of grace. It's a result of real faith and an evidence of love, which is the badge of a Christian. You will know, not many of us are ready to hear this, but you will know my Christians by their egretea. You will know them by this because this is part of love. You cannot remove this and expect to have an evidence of love. Believe me, when you see what this is, this is huge. Aggressively exerting the claim of God upon the soul. That's egretea. In other words, God has a claim on this life, on this soul, on this body, on this mind, on this sexuality, on this appetite. He says, mine. That's mine. He purchased it with his blood. Now you come into agreement with that by faith. And you say, hey, body, God rules you. You do as he says. So whatever I hear him saying, I'm going to tell you to obey it. And you will obey it. You beat this body into subjection. Okay? That doesn't mean cutting yourself. It doesn't mean creating painful exercises just so that you can remind your body that it's you know, not in control. It means telling your body to obey what the Spirit of God says. Joshua 21. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he swore to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he swore unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. Egratea. You see, this is the land flown with milk and honey in the Old Testament. By the way, you're the land flown with milk and honey in the New Testament. You just don't have any milk and honey there when the grace of God has not yet come in. Okay? But when the grace of God comes in through faith, this land is tilled. This land becomes fruitful and it grows up the plant of love and bears the fruit of hope. Okay? So what we see in the Old Testament is an early picture of this, a foreshadow of this. And God says, I've given you that land. Go in and take it. Well, how, how are the Israelites supposed to function? Hey, God said, out. And these guys are like, ah, and they run out. Okay? Walls collapse. Some of them rose up and tried to fight, but guess what? They all lose. When God is at the helm, when Joshua is at the helm, the enemy goes down and he clears out the land. If you have some remaining enemy armies or empires in your soul, Egratia, one of its first operations is clear out the territory. Get out of here. Hey, out. You do not belong in this body. Fear? No. Selfishness? No. Greed? No. You are not controlled by lust. You are not controlled by any of these things. Add this to your faith. Add it in. Implement it. Exert this authority over your soul. This is love. So set up a garrison. You know what a garrison is? A garrison is, say you take a territory. The enemy's been there this whole time, and then you take it. Now, most of us have, have done this. We come in, we take a territory. We're like jumping up and down, cheering, and then we go on to another territory but we don't set up a garrison. A garrison is a defense for that taken territory. If you take territory, set up a watch over it that the enemy doesn't just stroll back in the next day and go, huh, they left it behind. I guess I'll take it back. That's how most of us live our Christian life. We get rid of fear and then fear comes knocking the next day and we go, oh, come on in. Yeah, I, I love having you around. That's double-mindedness. Things don't work that way. You're either against fear or you're for it. Choose which one. You're either against pride or for it. You're either against lust or for it. You choose your position. 
Establish enkratea in your life. This is a new strength. Exert. Exert the purposes of God in this body. And set up a garrison. Egratea, the new strength. The strength of God made manifest in the saints in order to garrison the body. Shield it from every fiery dart of the enemy. It's a God-enabled governing of every operation of the body. A divinely empowered control over appetite, sleep, and sexuality. It's letting not sin reign any longer in the body. So let's discuss very quickly how most of us live. How most Christians live. Miserable living in unconquered Canaan. God says, go in and take the land. Could you imagine you move across the land, you take Jericho, and then you're like, you know what, enough fighting. We're peace-loving people. We just want to let all the other 30 empires just sort of maintain their position. We're just going to take our little corner here. They won't let you remain in that corner with peace. You see, that territory is God's. They know it. And if they have a chance, they'll kick you out of Jericho too. You have to take the whole thing. Miserable living in unconquered Canaan. Most of us have 31 hostile empires. We haven't even taken Jericho. So what's it like? In Numbers 33, God gives a picture of what it's like. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes. Doesn't sound very comfortable. And thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. I don't know if you really want to be vexed in the land wherein you dwell. That's how most of us have lived our life. We've been vexed in this land wherein we dwell, known as the human body. It's pretty miserable because we did not drive out the enemy, the inhabitants of the land. You see, when we first came to Jesus, they're inhabitants in this land. Operations of the enemy, behavior patterns that literally were completely against our living God. And God says, I've given you the promised land. Take it. Exert my authority over this body, over your mind, over your appetite, over your sexuality. These things go. Here's Joshua 23. Else, if you do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you, know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides, and thorns in your eyes. Now we got, instead of pricks in the eyes, we have thorns in the eyes. I don't know, which one would you pick? A prick or a thorn in your eye? It would be a fascinating question to ask all of you. Until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So until you perish, this is your life. Do not go back as a dog to vomit. Do not return unto them. You get them out and then you set up a garrison. Don't allow them back in. Okay, the hope of a completely conquered Canaan. Remember what hope is? It's the the fragrance. It's the taste. It's the beautiful color of it. There's hope. There's hope for a completely conquered Canaan. Can you taste it? You're not tasting it? Oh, this is good. We have reason to rejoice in Jesus Christ in that cross. Because he sends forth his grace to overtake this land and to purge it of every enemy faction. Oh, you guys should be jumping up and down over this. This is good stuff. So listen to Psalm 119. David is basically giving a concept of engratea. Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. This term, let not. Now watch how that continues. This is another David uh, statement. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. 
Let them not. Have you ever, you know what a presumptuous sin is? Oh, God won't mind. Eh. Presumptuous. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Okay, now what you see in the Old Testament is you have David literally calling upon God saying, please, let not this control me. Well, what was God's answer? Jesus Christ. Jesus has given us the answer to these prayers right here. That the enemy would not have dominion over us. Because look at what he says in the New Testament. In and through Paul, he voices the statement, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. It's been given to you now. So what does Paul say? Add it to. Add the new strength in. Exert it. Who's he talking to? He's talking to you. Paul's not talking to God there. saying, God's already done it. It's given to you. Take it and apply it. Exert it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Exert it. Engratea. Engratea, saints of God. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Know you not that they which run in a race all, that they which run in a race all, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that strives for mastery is, listen to this word, engratume. Okay, that's like the, the one version of the word, engratea, in this context. Strives for the mastery is engrate. Boy, I'm having a tough time with Engrateme, tome. Uh, don't check me on that one. In all things. In other words, he has new strength and dominance in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body. Now I put in my body under because this is a very confusing grammatical statement in the King James, which is very poorly done. But it makes it sound like he's keeping under his body. Actually, he says, but I keep under my body. In other words, he's putting his body under. I don't know if any of you have ever lived this way. Your body is not over you, controlling you. It's under. And bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So what's he doing? He's practicing a little ingratea. He's putting his body under. He's bringing it into subjection. Isn't that amazing? The inner alarm. Okay, all of that to get here. Now it's boot camp time. We're going to whip you saints into shape. Did I sound like a drill sergeant? Isn't that impressive? I should consider another career. Uh, okay, the inner alarm. I gave this illustration to some of the guys the other day. Actually, actually I think it was all the guys. But I was saying, when I was growing up, I would always get up at an odd number. Uh, you know, for a whole season of my life, it was 541 in college. And then it was 443, I think it was, for a whole uh, season of my life when I was living in Michigan. And I hated the sound of my alarm clock. Hated it. And so I'd be sleeping. And then my alarm would go, dee dee I cannot stand that sound. I remember a commercial coming on years ago. And it went, dee-dee, dee-dee. And I was like looking for how to turn it off. I mean, it's just like my instinct is that I literally do this. Dee-dee, <laughs> My goal was to turn off my alarm before it beeped twice. I did not want to hear that sound again. Okay, so what this is, what I painted up with the guys is a behavior pattern of soul. That we have been given an internal alarm system. 
that if the enemy begins to knock on our borders, that there is an immediate, and you need to hate that sound so much that you silence it and you respond immediately. You know what that is? Ingratea. It is the action of the soul towards dominance of the human body and the human mind and the human sexuality. We are not pushed around by the enemy. We keep a sharp watch. It's called sober-mindedness, watchfulness. We keep a constant alertness to how the enemy works, and we do not let him in. Okay, if this was boot camp, you know, the enemy doesn't just stroll in to your camp. You put up a watch, you're constantly monitoring what the enemy's behavior is. If he comes anywhere near you, all of the troops are notified. You must be always ready. All of you on guard and ready to put down the enemy's advancements against your soul. So we're going to call this the inner alarm. Some people, when they've tried to describe temperance, and I remember this years ago. I mean, we're talking 18 years ago when I was studying this previously. That I remember someone actually teaching. It was one of these old books. I used to read these books from the 1700s, 1800s. But they were calling temperance the inner alarm. They didn't use the exact term inner, but it was something like that. The inner, you know, uh, monitor. Uh, of the soul, that if you ever got too cold towards God, it would eh, 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 start going off. And so this is the inner alarm. Now we're going to go through some different tests. Remember I gave this to you guys the other day? I called it the measurement of humility. I have a whole bunch of measurements, but this is the one we gave a few days ago, the measurement of humility. How well do you handle personal error? When you step on someone's toe, when you accidentally misspeak, when you have a harshness to your behavior towards someone, you hurt them, how do you handle your missteps? What do you do? And so this is what I would call the measurement of humility. Humility is measured as a span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial recognition of your personal error, which is the alarm sounding, error, error, error alert inside of Eric Ludi, bad behavior, that is a big time no-no, Eric. And how quickly I turn off that alarm. And I make it right. And I say, that, that, was, um, that was incorrect. I'm, I'm sorry. It's a measurement of humility. The moment the clock starts going, because you are notified. Something's wrong within your soul. Do you recognize it? You recognize it, and then you know what most of us do? Well, I'm not about to just say it now. Let a little time pass. Let some of the awkwardness dissipate. Because our pride is also standing in the way then. We want to maintain a dignity about this. I'm not just going to say something mean and go, hey, I'm, that was wrong. Well, that's what you should do. If you notice that something is wrong, turn it off. You make it right. This is humility. This is the behavior of engratea. This is love in your body. You must realize that you have the strength to exert it. Most of us just don't want to. Because we have other issues that we're allowing in and we're hosting them and we're showing hospitality to them. No more. So it's the time, the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial recognition of your personal error and then the actual confessing with your mouth that you have erred and the seeking of forgiveness for the fault. The purest form of humility does not allow the arm, the alarm, to sound twice. The measurement of courage. This is what we were talking about with the guys. How well do you respond to the suggestion of fear? We were talking about the fact that if there was a list that was handed to us and some recruiter from heaven was saying, 
I'm looking for men. God sent me on an errand to find 10 guys here at Ellerslie who would be willing to basically go off and die martyrs' deaths. Uh, and so I'm going to leave the sign-up form here uh, on the uh, counter, and I'll come back and check later this afternoon. Well, how do you handle this? Because immediately you know what's going on off inside of you? <laughs> because your courage is being tested. Fear is making its advance on your soul. And it's saying self-protect. Let someone else do it. There's 21 guys here. You don't need to be the one. It's looking for some loophole and some justification. But you know what Ingratia says? No fear. If God is asking, I'm your man. Before the alarm goes off twice. Yes, I'm your man. That is not the way most of us function. But I'm saying that's the way we ought to function. Courage is measured as a span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the truth is made manifest to your understanding, or in other words, the alarm sounds and the command for obedience has been issued and discerned, and then the actual faith-filled, resolute, truth-empowered response arises to willingly and joyfully accept the challenge. The purest form of courage does not allow the alarm to sound twice, no matter if it is a call to great pain, torture, and death. If it be for the glory of our king, the alarm must not needs sound twice. You do not heed fear. Fear knocks, you say no. You allow courage and bravery and daring to swell within the soul. The works and the evidences of God. Grace is there for the taking. Allow grace in and through your faith to swallow the situation whole. Respond with confidence, assuredness in your step. Your God's asking. You respond with a yes. The measurement of purity. How well do you respond to temptation? Purity is measured as a span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the temptation strikes the human soul to the moment when the soul issues forth its command to destroy that intruder. Okay, guy driving down the street. He's not responsible for that billboard that's there. He didn't put it up. But that is no justification to spend even one second meditating upon it. If your eyes see it, you immediately move away. The alarm goes, dee -dee, you go, Kunk. nope, destroy that intruder. You do not turn over the thought once in your mind. It is not allowed. You give it no space. Destroy that intruder. Never should the purity alarm need to beep twice. The soldier of the cross expresses his great faith and love by maintaining a constant vigilant watch over his soul. Enemy messages are never entertained, never read, never pondered, and certainly not allowed to remain in and amongst the congregation of the saints. Hit these thoughts, these intruders, these tempters, with the aggressive resolve of the twice-born to remain untouched by this world. Whether it be visual temptation, emotional temptation, or physical temptation, the answer is always the same. No! Engratea! Exert your soul in this direction! Add this to your faith. This is the evidence of Christ at large within your soul. This is his nature, his behavior, his love. And this is how you show love towards him. The measurement of industry. Industry is like diligence on steroids. Industry is constant diligence. Okay, we're lacking diligence. If any of you heard my message last week, the Christian work ethic. Yeah, we're hurting in that area. We're limping along. Well, industry is what we are supposed to be demonstrating as Christians. Industrious, diligent, always. 
in the matters of the kingdom of heaven, in the matters of our soul, in the matters of our marriages, the matters of our family, the matters of the saints of God. How well do you respond to tiredness and physical weakness? What usually knocks out industry? Oh, man, I've been working so hard. I'm working harder than everyone else. Tiredness, justification swells within our soul, within our mind. Industry is measured as a span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the physical, emotional, spiritual, and or psychological tiredness strikes and the moment that the grace of God is beckoned forth to ensure soundness of body, mind, soul, and spirit. Okay, now I teach this a lot at Ellerslie. We basically, our statement is Noah Kekio, which is tiredness, weakness, flabbiness. Any type of physical weakness, when God's will is in the ascendant, because God allows us to sleep. There's no, no problem with that. However... We sleep on his clock, not on ours. Our body does not control our calling. We are controlled by the Spirit of God. And there's times when we must be awake to pray. There's times when we must be sharp for our kids. And I know that. A, guy, a man comes home from work. I mean, I, I have days that are utterly exhausting physically. I come home and my kids want to wrestle. That's the first thing they want. Wrestle. Not sit and have a nice chat with daddy. Uh, they don't just go, so daddy, could you share with me your day? That sounds pretty pleasant. This is wrestle. And my kids don't wrestle fair. I got face, you know, knees and the cheekbone and you know, all sorts of things going on. It's hard work. And here's what happens. When that tiredness begins to sweep through my body, no. Ingratia. I am not going down now. I need to be there for my children and be there for my wife. I need to be there for my God. I am always watchful, alert. I'm not just going to fall asleep in the watchtower. I know I need to be awake right now. There are times when I have full freedom to go to sleep. It's wonderful. And there are other times when I need to be watchful and sharp. And that's industry. If the spirit is working and in need of your watchfulness and energetic givenness, then the alarm should not need sound twice. Rise up in the strength of Jesus Christ, O valiant soul. Stay focused, stay sharp, stay sober-minded, and stay watchful. Apply your energies until that mo the moment that God gives the word to cease from your labors. I have been applying. You know, last week's message on work ethic didn't just hit you guys in the eyes. Uh, this, this was for me, too, because there were subtle, subtle e evidences in my life. Well, you see, I work very hard, and I could easily justify that you know, I'm working harder than most people alive today. However, there were certain areas of my life where I would not give a full energy and I would be sluggish in my response to them. And I found a couple this week. And I was watching my soul very closely this week. I don't remember what it was, but I was, I'd really been working hard. It's always the time when this will try and slip in. And Leslie needed me to go down and swap over. And this is in the far corner of our basement in our laundry room. Swap over the wet into the dry. And usually, see, I'll do it. You know, I'm not going to complain about it even. But what I'll do is I'll move slow. And I'll be thinking, boy all the way up and down these stairs another time. That's a type of, that's an alarm though now. Dee -dee. And so what did I do this week? Strength! Apply yourself, Eric! Joy! You have energy, you spend it now, trusting full well that God will give you all the energy to make up for it. You'll have the energy when you get back up these stairs to give to your kids and family. What we have a tendency to do is try and you know, sparingly use it. And so instead of pouring ourselves into every task, we go, well, I need to hold on to this, so I'm going to be sluggish in this. Sluggishness isn't maintaining any energy. It's allowing it to slip out the sides. You maintain a tautness to your soul, a sharpness to your soul, a givenness in every situation. That alarm goes, dee-dee. No. 
I'm going to be sharp. I'm going to be given. So I sort of danced down the stairs, took the stuff out, stuck it in the dryer, found a, a little bunny in the, in the uh, window well, said, I'm going to rescue you in just a bit, just a second. He's <laughs> on top of it. The measurement of attentiveness. How well do you respond to distraction? There should be a question mark at the end of that. You start praying, what happens in your mind? A thousand little distractions. How well do you handle it? The measurement of attentiveness, givenness, focus. Because you have a job and your job is to focus. Seek first the kingdom. Not all these other things over here. You seek first. God has given you a clear vision for what you're supposed to be after in your life. Paul says, think on these things. And he gives us a list of the things that our mind is supposed to be focused on. If you have anything that is attempting to say, well, what about this over here? You say, no. You must be sharp. Now, there's other things that are perfectly fine. You need to do something. You're supposed to remember a thank you note here. You're supposed to, oh, someone's birthday. You need to email them. When you get into prayer, you'll notice those things will pop out of the woodwork. Okay? It's still a measurement of your attentiveness. You still need to deal with those things. They're perfectly fine things to do. So here's my advice to you. Carry a little notepad around with you. Write them down and get back to business. Get it out of the way. Don't try and hold it in your RAM there. Because it'll distract and it'll rob from your focus. How well do you respond to distraction? Attentiveness is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the side-swiping, distracting thought niggles at your mind. It needs not be a sinful thought to need to be quickly addressed. Anything, no matter how important it may seem, mustn't distract you from the spirit engagement and spirit-assigned work that you are currently engaged in. Stay focused, stay on target, don't let the alarm go off twice. Command your mind into order. And if need be, keep a pad of paper handy in order to disengage from the thought quickly so that it can be addressed at a more appropriate time. Don't let anything usurp the God priority of your life. A newly arrived email beep in your email box. What does an email beep sound like? Ding. Maybe that's it. At least in my computer. Ding. That'll distract you. you can be, I've been in the middle of great biblical studies. Ding. Hmm. Hmm. Who would be emailing me at 4.30 in the morning? You know, think whatever it is. A cell phone buzz. A phone ring or even a knock on the door. If you are writing the king's name, do not budge from your position. Now, writing the king's name, that'll make sense to you guys when we teach a different message. We're talking about how translations were made and how the scriptures were transcribed. Uh, One of the number one elements of the Talmudists when they were translating, the most holy word in the entire Bible was the name of God. And they would freshly clean their pen before they would write it. And then when they were writing it, if even the king came in, they would ignore him. The measurement of faith. How well do you respond to the bait of doubt? Faith is measures the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that your soul beholds the seeming contradiction to the truth of God's word, the efficacy of his promise to his saints. And when your soul cries out with unshaken, unstaggered confidence, Here I stand! I will not be moved. My God has promised and he cannot lie. This is the believing man's soul's soul responsibility. That, the believing man's soul should be S-O-L-E, responsibility. To believe his God even when the entire world and all its illusion attempt to confute and refute the realities of the great cross purchase. The alarm must not beat twice. Your Jesus is on a cross. He's the Messiah. He's fulfilled the canon test to perfection. I mean, but he's dying. Here I stand. That is my salvation. Remember what the thief on the cross said? 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did the thief see? He saw a king. Do you see a king always? I don't care if he looks weak in the moment. I don't care if his church is on its, you know, its seemingly last leg and it doesn't seem it's going to be able to last another generation. Who is your God? When Lazarus goes down, Jesus said this will not end in death. But Lazarus is dead. He's wrapped in grave claws and in a grave. What's your response? Here I stand. I will not move. My God has promised and he cannot lie. It's a long four days. But guess what? Those who put their trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. How do you handle doubt? When it comes a knocking and that alarm goes, slam it. Silent. You believe your God. You do not believe this earth. The measurement of joy. How well do you respond to trials? Joy is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the trial of your faith, the false accusation, the betrayal, or the harsh demeaning treatment begins. And the moment the soul shouts out, Rejoice, O my soul! Find your satisfaction, your confidence, and your delight in God Almighty. Consider this pure joy. You command your soul to handle it correctly. This is a hard one. Most of us, our measurement of joy is pretty pitiful. It's like a lot of time is passing. You know, years pass, and we're like, you know, I probably should respond to this properly now. We're talking instant response. Engratea. You have the substance purchased on the cross. The grace of God is made manifest in you. You believe in your God, and he will work this in you. The joy of the Lord is the saint's secret strength. And therefore the alarm must not beep twice in order that the enemy not gain any advantage in and through his wily attack. The measurement of peace. How well do you respond to the bait of anxiety, fretting, and foreboding? Peace is measured as a span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the bad news of the anxiety-baited information arrives in your mental inbox until the moment when you deliberately choose to exclaim within your soul, My hope is fixed on the rock of Jesus Christ. And since he is not shaken and he is not moved, neither will I allow my soul to disgrace him by showing even the slightest measure of anxiety in this moment. I don't care what hits you. You could find out news that America has been bombed, that the government has been seized. What's the soul? What's going on in your soul? There's a bait for anxiety. Give in. Allow the enemy to come in and control your mentality in this situation. What do you do? Slam it silent. Your soul will rejoice in the Lord. You have confidence in him alone. Your confidences aren't in the kingdoms of this earth anyways. It doesn't matter what happens to them. You could find out that your bank account has been seized. Your confidence is not in earthly monetary funds. Your confidence is in your king. Prove it. Prove it. Are you a man or a woman of faith? Are you a man or woman only that goes by sight? And your confidence in God only stems when you feel secure in this earth. Where is your confidence? Prove it in this moment. You will not be shaken. Your feet are fixed upon a rock. Ingratia. Anxiety has no legal right to engage a believer's soul. No legal right, that is, unless the believing soul chooses to entertain it and listen to its counsel. In other words, the alarm must not beep twice. The measurement of kindness. How well do you respond to the needs of those around you? Kindness is measures the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment you comprehend the need of another, recognizing also the leading of the Spirit to give yourself practically to the situation. 
and then the moment you engage in being a practical answer to that need. Some of you have, know exactly what I'm talking about. You see a need, and God says, give your energies there. There's a lot of need in this world, and you're not able to handle all of it. But God will assign you, and he will take your strength, and he'll say, now. When you hear that, deet, go off, how long are you going to let that beep go? Some of us just hope, you know, you ever notice that alarms eventually go off? I don't know, some of them take forever. You ever, and some of them never go off. You ever been in, you know, like walked into a dorm room and this thing is still going off? Uh, it's like, what in the world's going on? There's this guy still under this covers. Uh, some of us are just hoping the alarm will go off, okay? And that's a callousing of soul, a callousing of conscience. Don't let it happen. Don't let your alarm eventually just go off. You must respond to it. If you're hearing an alarm in your soul, it's a definition or it's an evidence of life within. You have the real stuff going on. Now you must show ingratia and respond. The measurement of gentleness. How well do you respond to harsh treatment from others? Gentleness is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that you are poorly treated, offended, or otherwise harmed by another person, and the moment in which you choose to respond in an opposite spirit, extend love in return, and choose to forgive their behavior with a blessing-drenched attitude. The flesh bait. What does the flesh tell you? Why wouldn't we respond right away? Why would we allow the alarm to keep beeping? Because we believe the flesh. Give it another look. Come on. It's okay. Give it another look. Give it a little longer. Whatever it is. I don't care what it is. This applies to a thousand different things. Give it a little longer. You're engaged in something dangerous and the flesh will say, come on, keep it going. You deserve this. I don't know where that one came from. That's like American marketing policy number one. You know, you deserve this. If they can convince us of that, we'll sell our soul. God knows you need a little break. You've been working hard. Come on. Come on, just a little break. God will forgive this. That's what's called a presumptuous sin. David says, save me from presumptuous sins. Ingratia! You have what you need to not mess with this ridiculousness in your soul. Meanwhile, the faith-filled, hope-filled, loving response is always without, without question, without exception, dot, dot, dot. No. No. No to the flesh, yes to God. No to anything that makes its move against your soul. No. And then you turn to God And you say, yes, Lord. Your answer is yes always to God. And that's how you're turning off the alarm. And it's no to the intruder. Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulations work patience, which is hupomone, which is one of the words that is involved in love. And patience, experience, and experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Agape is shed abroad in our hearts because of the seed of grace, the Holy Spirit, that has been given unto us. We have hope. We have reason to rejoice no matter what the enemy brings our way. Tribulations is the context. 
the threshing instrument, which is breaking away all the chaff from our life, and we rejoice. What an attitude. This is triumph. This is Christianity. And you have the opportunity to find it to its fullest measure. With all diligence, add to your faith. With all diligence. Quick! See, this is all diligence. Frunk! Turn off the alarm. Diligently. With haste. Swiftly in your soul. Add to that faith that God has given you. It's a gift of grace in and of itself that you even have faith. Now add to it. Allow God to build you up into the full maturity of the man of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.